We return one last time to Matthew chapter 5. We pick up this morning at verse 43. Matthew 5, 43. Ye have heard, said the Lord Jesus, that it hath been said, Thou shalt love thy neighbor and hate thine enemy. But I say unto you, love your enemies, bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you, pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you, that ye may be children of your Father which is in heaven, for he maketh his son, it's not my son, not your son, it's not the government's son, it's God's son, notice that. He maketh his son to rise on the evil and on the good, and sendeth rain on the just and the unjust. For if ye love them which love you, what reward have ye? Do not even the publicans the same? And if ye salute your brethren only, what do ye more than others? Do not even the publicans so? Be ye therefore perfect, even as your Father which is in heaven is perfect. Father, this morning we come to the ending of six illustrations from the lips of our Lord each of which unnerve us and trouble us as to our lacking sense of success to obey, to be righteous, as indeed you demand righteousness. O oh God, the law is our tutor to point us to the necessity of salvation in Jesus Christ. And we are reminded, even as your children this morning, how the law works to do that when we consider the application of the law as spoken by our Lord. Help us then today to be true to the gospel, but also help us today, especially because in this place so many name the name of Christ, to understand that the law's sense of righteousness is exactly your brand of perfect righteousness, and that that perfect righteousness in living application is that to which we are called. Impossible, my soul would say, and yet we're reminded this morning that nothing is impossible with you, our God. Bless then your people at study today, and for that we will praise you in Jesus' name and for his blessed sake, amen. My daughter-in-law, Mandy, and I talk once a week on the phone. I try to make contact with the adult members of my family, both my sons and my daughter-in-laws, at least once a week. And my weekly conversation with Mandy happens in the early morning and my day off on Thursday. This past week, I knew that... Uh, Mandy was ready for her piano recital, or getting ready for her piano recital, which took place on Friday night. She has 18 piano students, 
and uh, their recital on Friday night is a big deal uh, to her in preparation. Uh, this particular year, she picked a theme of the nations. Not all of her students are coming from believing families, but she picked a uh, uh, theme for the piano recital on the nations, and then she assigns music uh, that uh, goes along with the aspect of that theme. And she told me about one junior high boy who is a student of hers who greatly rebelled when she assigned to him his music. Uh, it happened to be that she assigned to him a Russian piece. And he said, I'm not playing a Russian piece. And Mandy said, you're not? And he said, no. And she said, why not? And he said, because I'm for Ukraine. Well, Mandy went on to explain that she's the teacher and that just because the Russians are perpetrators of war, doesn't mean that there's something necessarily evil about their music and that we want to have Russian music represented in our piano recital and so you will play this Russian piece. Enemy love is what Jesus calls us to and I tell you that it's a stretch to think about the application of enemy love in your life and mine these days. We come to the last of six unnerving illustrations from the lips of King Jesus taken from the Old Testament law that are intended to drive the soul of the listener to bankruptcy. The point of the sermon is to drive the soul to the point of absolute bankruptcy so that the heart just has to turn to God for whatever he's got. And what you find when you turn to God for whatever he's got is you find the grace of God in Jesus Christ. The sermon brings the soul to bankruptcy and it points to the necessity of God's power and rescue. For the sake of my own memory and teaching, I've named the sixth test based upon the content here. Previously, we have considered the life test, the lust test, the loose test, the lip test, and the let test. And now, this morning, we're going to look at the love test, which is nothing less than enemy love. But I want to refresh your memory of the five tests that preceded this before we get to the love test this morning. The life test uh, begins at verse 21. Uh, we all know that murder is a serious sin and are glad to not have it be true of us in violation. But Jesus said that a correct understanding of the law means that unrighteous anger of heart violates the standard of God for life. Question, have you failed God's pro-life test? Most everyone on earth has. The lust test, we all know, beginning at verse 27, we all know that adultery is serious violation of God's brand of righteousness. But Jesus said that even lustful looks and sexual thoughts violate God's holy standard 
when found outside the context of marriage? Have you passed God's lust test? The loose test, as it is in let her loose, beginning at verse 31. We all know that relational commitments matter, but Jesus said that broken relational commitments on earth perpetuate evil in the lives of the breaker and in the lives of others that are involved. Are you committed or are you relationally loose? Most everyone flunks the loose test as Jesus talked about relational integrity. The lip test, beginning in verse 33, we all know that lying violates God's holy standard for mankind, but Jesus said that anything beyond a simple yes and no associates a person with the evil one. Truth ever and always on your lips. Do you pass that test? The let test. We know that justice demands violators be punished. But Jesus forbid that personal revenge should ever be taken into one's own hands, but rather deference to God, who judges righteously and takes revenge as his exclusive prerogative. Do you let God be God and resist taking matters into your own hands? Do you pass the let test? As in, let God take care of that. Do you pass the let test? These five illustrations previously studied are unnerving. And at some point in time, you failed or failed and failed and failed and failed and failed. None of these five tests, nor the last ones, which we call the love test, as spoken by King Jesus, corrects the law, nor less nullifies it, but rather demonstrates perfectly the holy standard of God's righteous demand. The righteousness of God's demand cannot be met by sinful people, period. By the time you finish hearing Jesus speak to God's holy kingdom come, and those kingdom expectations stated precisely in terms of the law, You should know yourself as undone, unclean, and unable to meet God's standard. But God. In King Jesus, we have provision of the very righteousness of God's demand. If you desire the kingdom of God, you must come by means of of the king. Once in the kingdom, your life ought and can reflect the righteousness of God's demand by the power of the Holy Spirit. The Messiah's manifesto points the sinner to the Savior. The manifesto points the sinner to the necessity of the Savior. And the Messiah's manifesto points the saint to the necessity of the Holy Spirit. Historically, the Messiah's manifesto exposed the necessity of the nation of Israel 
for the new heart and that new wave of transformation as was promised in the Old Testament prophets. The last and capstone illustration revealing the righteousness of God's demand is enemy love. Jesus said, love your enemies. Verse 44, but I say unto you, love your enemies. Bless them that curse you. Bless, by the way, is eulageo. It's where we get our English word eulogy from. It says, you speak well of those that don't speak well of you. You speak well of those that condemn you or doom you. That's what Jesus said. Do good to them that hate you. Pray for them which treat you with contempt, despitefully use you, and chase you or persecute you. The love test is not about loving your mother. Chances are you do. Or your son. Chances are you do. Or your brother. Chances are you do. The love test is about loving your enemies. This is the righteous demand of God for all kingdom citizens. Now, before we work to describe the love as we see it in the text, I would like to take a few moments to prescribe the love as to its reflective character, number one, and its future certainty. Two things by way of introduction before we describe the enemy love that we find here. The first thing has to do with its reflective character, God's character, and the second thing has to do with the future certainty. Look at the last verse where the righteous perfection of God the Father is the calling and demand placed upon every kingdom citizen. Be ye therefore perfect, even as your Father which is in heaven is perfect. The Father is calling us and demanding of us the same kind of perfections that are reflective of his own character. Enemy love is going to help us understand this call to the perfection of God. And in fact, the call to the perfection of God will help us to understand enemy love. And so that's why we wanted to introduce that as we begin. In verse 45, uh, you have evidence that enemy love is the eternal love of God's own character. Uh, that ye may be children of your Father which is in heaven. That statement introduces us to what I uh, want to at least mention this morning, which has to do with the eternal love of God. Do you realize that God has been the same from eternity past to eternity future? The love of God has never changed. God does not change. God is immutable. Therefore, his love is not just a lasting love. Duh. His love is an eternal love. And if we use the words of the text, it is a perfect and eternal love. God's love is indeed exercised in mercy or kindness 
toward both the just and the unjust, or the righteous and the unrighteous. All men experience something of the grace of God out of his love and mercy, even though not all men experience the saving grace of God. Paul tells us that while we were yet enemies of God, we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son. Paul, in that same passage, Romans 5, tells us that Christ died for the ungodly. Christ only died for ungodly people because apart from God's transformation in Christ, there are no godly people. God's love and eternal love has been expressed towards humanity, his own sinful enemies. The logic of verse 45 is that as God loves, so his children are to love. The love that we are called to is the love of God. It's the eternal love of God. It's the perfect eternal love of God. That love which was indeed manifest or made known to God's own enemies. Which indeed we were B.C. before Christ. The second wrinkle by way of introduction concerning the love of which we're talking about, not only an eternal love, but secondly, it is the eschatological love of God's kingdom promise. The logic in verse 46, for if ye love them which love you, what reward have ye? That phrase, what reward have ye, reminds us that the Lord Jesus Christ promises reward to those kingdom citizens who love as they've been loved in Christ Jesus. This is that eschatological love of God's kingdom promise. When God's will is done on earth as it is in heaven, when God's kingdom fully come, perfect love is characterized of everyone there, God and all his children. So the love of God's demand is the perfect love that he eternally is and has expressed. The love of God's demand is the perfect love reality in the future kingdom as God specifically has promised it. In that eschatological kingdom to come, for which we continue to pray, there is no faith, and there is no hope. There is only an eternal love. That is the promise of the Almighty. The perfection that is of God the Father has certainly been seen on earth in the life of God the Son. And it is to be seen in the lives of the sons of God.
the logical progression that flows in this passage is, as the Father, so the Son, as the Son, so the sons. As the Father, so the Son, as the Son, so the Son. Scripture declares that God is love. Jesus demonstrates that very love to mankind, and he did it, as we've learned in 1 John, at the cross. This is true of Christ in manifestation of the precise love of God, eternal and eschatologically promised. And what is true of the Father and what is true of the Son is to be true of those that follow God. His true followers are to be known for their love for God and man. That is the sequence and logic that drives our understanding of the text. Now we want to talk about this love as it is described in the text. This love in operation, we say first, is an extending love. Again, 30, or 43 and 44. Ye have heard that it hath been said, Thou shalt love thy neighbor and hate thine enemy. But I say unto you, love your enemies, bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you, and pray for them that despitefully use you and chase you or persecute you. There were two common misrepresentations of God's Old Testament law in Jesus' day. First, it was the Jewish rabbis that taught that a person should hate their enemy. Now, the reason why the rabbis taught that you should love God and hate your enemy was for Fox News purposes. Was for patriotic purposes. In order to stir the fires of patriotism, the Jewish rabbis taught, love God, hate your enemy. That concept Love God, hate your enemy, cannot be found in any scripture. It is 100% a perversion of the word of God. In fact, even in the Old Testament scriptures, there are plenty of evidences. We're going to look at one. But there are plenty of evidences in which this idea under the law of God to extend good to those that are evil, to extend the aspect of kindness to those that wrong you. Uh, that concept is represented well in the Old Testament. Far, 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 far from the idea of hating your enemies is what the Bible actually says. But nonetheless, in that day, preachers of the, uh, of the Jewish variety, like preachers today of the Christian variety, felt quite free to say anything they wanted to, whether they had a Bible text or not. And so, as a result of that, Jesus was able to say to the crowd on that day of his preaching and teaching, uh, you have heard, love God, hate your enemy. 
And then Jesus, of course, goes on to correct that. Let me show you uh, an incident of, uh, of where just the opposite is represented in the Old Testament. Exodus, uh, that's, of course, second book of the Torah, uh, falls within the, the, the element of the broader five books named in the beginning of the Bible that are referred commonly as the law. Exodus 23, verse 4. If thou meet thine enemy's ox or his ass going astray, thou shalt surely bring it back to him again. If thou see the ass of him that hath hateth thee lying under his burden and wouldest forbear to help him, thou shalt surely help with him. Uh, there are expressions right there of doing good even to those that indeed are your known and stated enemies. And so when Jesus says uh, back in his sermon, you have heard love God hate your enemy as being the aspect of, uh, of, the, of the unique way to describe uh, 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 the reality of Christ. Uh, then you understand the fact that that same kind of error is happening in our modern world as it relates to political conservatism and biblical Christianity. Not everybody that is a political conservative is a biblical Christian. And many political conservatives will die and go to hell because they've not turned to Jesus Christ as the only one who can save. We need to be careful in our enthusiasm for conservatism that we not abandon biblical Christianity. Because it's real easy to get a, just a little bit of it wrong and really be wrong all the way. Okay, warning said. Exodus 23 confirms that what was being taught was incorrect. Now, that's not all that was being taught incorrectly. And so before we go back to the New Testament, flip over just a few pages to that which is probably a little more familiar. Exodus, I'm sorry, Leviticus chapter 19 and verse 18, where you find the common statement in the whole from under the law that has to relate to neighborly love. Neighborly love. Exodus 19 and verse 18. Thou shalt not avenge. That would relate back to the loose test. Let God take care of those who wrong you, nor bear any grudge against the children of thy people, but thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. I am the Lord, the ever-living, ever-existing one. We usually, in modern Hebrew, say Yahweh. Love thy neighbor as thyself. The common dropping in Jesus' day of the phrase, as yourself, also impacts Jesus' indication back in Matthew chapter 5, where Jesus says at verse 43, uh, you've heard it said, love your neighbor and hate thine enemy. Self-righteous Jewish leaders were not willing to love anyone on a plane equal to themselves. And so Jesus said that love and prayer is to govern every relationship in a kingdom citizen's life. I never have to wonder if I should love 
I just need to know how that love is to be expressed. I never have to wonder if I should pray. I just have to give my mind as to how I can pray consistent with the scriptures. The idea of love here is not primarily a feeling. It is indeed a rendered service. The idea of love your enemy is the rendering of service. I am to extend, that's the first word of emphasis we're making this morning, I am to extend good to all. You can love people that you do not even like. If you think about the uh, greeter and the clerk at Meyer, uh, that person is being paid to be nice to you, and sometimes they're not even all that nice then when they're collecting money for it. But she has to thank you, and she has to treat you like a good neighbor, or she runs the risk of losing her job. When break time comes, she may well test, tell her other fellow clerks how hard it was to be nice to certain people in line that she serviced, but she still serviced them nonetheless. Now, I'm not saying that you and I can ultimately have a sense of, uh, of, uh, of just feeling really good about ourselves when we render good to others, and yet our hearts are filled with emotions of hate or distrust or evil. Uh, we already know that that would fail in another regard. But it is love service of people, not for the sake of a paycheck, but for the sake of the Lord that Jesus is talking about here. Our Lord serviced all men regardless of their response. As the eternal and eschatological love of God the Father is seen in God the Son during his earthly sojourn, both in what he did, preaching the truth, helping others physically, and indeed, dying for sins. He died while we were indeed the enemies of God, enemy love. So you have the kind of love prescribed in the Father manifest in the Son, and what Jesus is saying is that which is true of the Father and true in the Son is to be true of the sons. It's to be true of the children of God. Enemy love is to be true of the children of God. Secondly, this enemy love in operation is an exceeding love. Verses 46 and 47. For if ye love them which love you, what reward have ye? Do not even the publicans the same? And if ye salute your brethren only, what do ye more than others? Do not even the publicans so? Jesus said that living the love life evidences that you belong to God. He then shows that people in the world are nice to their own, and that such a standard cannot be said to be special in any way. Beer drinking, line dancing, blue jean clad 
people love their own. The bar is one happy place when people belong. But let someone in who doesn't belong or fit in, and things can be very different and in a hurry. The same bar known for its good times is also known for its fights. The operation of love in the lives of the sons of God, like the Son of God, is to exceed, keyword, exceed the type that is seen in mankind at large. Our love, enemy love, is to be an exceeding love. It is to be that which focuses upon the exceeding of that which we see in the world, where that people love their own. We in Christ represent the most powerful world-wide and universal government that will ever rule on this earth. The holy purpose of that kingdom come will not be denied. And its present delay is justified in the scripture in the terms of saving opportunity for somebody else somewhere according to the will of God. The only reason why we even have elections and the reason why we have an engagement with nations in the world as it relates to their governmental structures is because the governmental system which is guaranteed to forever be in place when once it comes is just soon to come yet. Thus we are taught to pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That prayer is guaranteed to be answered according to the perfection of God, by the power of God in the future. Now, I think it's important that as we think upon these particular realities, that we back up just one quick more, more minute, go back to verse 45, and see the definitive description of how that love operates God to man. Verse 45, that ye may be the children of your Father which is in heaven, for he maketh his Son to rise on the evil and on the good, and sendeth rain on the just or the righteous and the unjust. Listen, God does not have the exact same kind of love for every man. I can tell you this, that God the Father loves God the Son more than any human being other than God the Son. And I can tell you this, that God certainly loves and has dealt with his children in a way 
uh, that is beyond the love that is commonly known by the unrighteous and the unbelieving that are in the world. No man can say, I've never experienced the love of God. Many men will indeed someday recognize they have never experienced the saving love of God. Therefore, the command upon men, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, is brought to bear. Understand it all? I don't. But that's what the Bible says. And we take the Bible as the very word of God. Here's what the Bible says in this regard. The love of God is indeed manifest. It is indeed servicing both the righteous and the unrighteous. And that's exactly the love that you and I are called to. You and I are to service with the love of God, with the truth of the gospel, with the reality of a perspective of a kingdom to come that will absolutely uh, just, uh, as it were, uh, eliminate all other governmental systems in all the earth. And as representatives of that kingdom come, you and I are to serve God by serving others. In the truth, as Jesus spoke the truth, in helping others, and we can't do it as Jesus did it. If I could, I'd go to Spectrum Health right now and empty the hospital. But nonetheless, can't do that. But that Lord's unique power, miraculous power, demonstrated uh, to underscore the truth of him. But nonetheless, the standard of helping people as best I can help people, whether they're righteous people or unrighteous people, is that to which I've been called. It is an exceeding love than the love that is in common operation in the context of the world. And then the last thing that we say this morning is that this love is an embodying love. From verse 48 again, Be ye therefore perfect, even as your Father which is in heaven is perfect. The sum of all the commandments is love God and your neighbor as yourself. The superior righteousness of God demanded in the law was embodied in Jesus Christ. The very same righteousness is required of every man. You do not possess this righteousness, nor can you possess it on your own. Work like a dog and achieve great things for your fellow man, and you will still fail miserably short of God's thrice holy expectation. When a person expresses their faith in Jesus Christ, they receive to their account his righteousness. They receive in Christ the superior righteousness of God's demand. This is why the epistles declare Christ in you the hope of glory. God's law rightly grasped condemns us in matters of personal life. Convicted by the righteousness of the law, we turn to the Lord, the only sinless man that died in substitution for our sins. If you desire God's kingdom, you must come by means of the king. Whence you come to the kingdom of God by the king, by faith in Christ. 
your life and mine then must begin to increasingly reflect the righteousness of God's demand as seen in the Lord Jesus while on earth. This demand in the law points every sinner to the Savior. And this demand in the law for the saint points the saint to the necessity of full cooperation with the indwelling Holy Spirit. Be sure of this. In your personal case, or mine, before God, it is indeed impossible. But nothing is impossible with God. As we understand the great thing that God in love did for us at the cross, we must also come to understand the power of God to make perfect, as he is perfect. Our Lord's six unnerving illustrations of actual righteousness demanded in the Old Testament law points us all to the righteousness of God's provision. That we might welcome Christ with a whole heart and know the Lord's salvation. And then we might rest upon the indwelling Holy Spirit to do that which in the flesh we cannot do, including loving our enemies. We will sing again this morning after prayer of Christ's provision unto our kingdom perfection. Father, this morning it is startling